Blindfold, please. Yes, 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 yes. That's my job. That's my job. What? 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 Wow! It's really weird. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this episode of Bite High No Limit with me, Carlos. It's Max Headroom Month. That means it's the month where we all commemorate that famous broadcast intrusion that Max Headroom performed in 1987 on a Chicago PBS. And this month I'm absolutely delighted to speak to Whitney B. Merrill, who's a privacy and infosec lawyer, but also has a big presence on Twitter with regards to hacking and knows the hacking community of Chicago. Um, Because of this, uh, she's been privy to some theories in the past and some theories that she's formulated herself. And uh, she was very kind to give me some of her time to share some of her thoughts about Max Hedrum, the state of um, hacking, the state of info security, what we think of the future, and also talking about her projects in her Etsy as well. So on with the show. Um, really love what I do. Um, privacy and security are not just a job to me. They're really a way of life and a way that I contribute. And that comes out a lot in my hobbies, including my art, which is where kind of the Max Headroom stuff mm. is born, is um, looking to find a balance when I was so actually very early in my career. I I went to law school and privacy and security wasn't a big thing that they focused on in law school. GDPR had not come out yet. And I was spending my free time teaching myself about privacy and security and really trying to basically fall more in love with it. And um, it became a huge hobby and like passion of mine. Um, I knew it was what I was meant to do. And then I actually got a job doing privacy and security. And then you find out you're spending your day doing the work and then you're spending your evenings doing your hobby, which are the exact same thing. And so as a way for me to kind of um, not burn out on the two topics, um, I started exploring ways for me to have an artistic avenue to kind of stay connected to privacy and security, but also still like not be reading like legal articles or security articles all the time, even in my free time, give myself a little bit of a work-life balance, um, which has helped. (laughs) It's it's a great outlet and it's uh, showing your creative side, like you're saying, still keeping the synergy with uh, your passion at work. Though, was it they say, if you find something you enjoy doing, you never work a day in your life. I think that's the, that's the phrase that's that's often used. I like to say, if you find something you love, you never work harder than you are right now. Like I just, I've never worked harder than than doing something that I love um, because it's so interesting and so fun. Um, and so, yeah, gets me up every day. No, no, definitely. It's an excellent motivation. So how did the young uh, Whitney Merrill actually encounter technology? What was your first alliance with 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 technology? Did you have like a, a like a, a tape recorder or, or, old, or old Atari that you used to play on uh, in, in your younger years? Good question. You know, my father was very into technology while I was growing up, and I feel like I'm very much like him. He and I are very similar. And so I remember being very young and having an Apple IIe that I would play on. And that was probably my first, like, 
the first time I remember truly playing with like a piece of technology and having a computer. And then my dad upgraded our computers at some point, And I was like obsessed with helping him set it up and like learn to use it. And so computers have always been a big piece of my life and like what I've been interested in. Um, but yeah, any other technologies? I mean, really it was the computers when I was very young. Um, late 80s early 90s yeah. um so yeah yeah no it's 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 really interesting and you stayed in in that vein so when um when did you first discover max headroom for yourself in in your own private life um so i had always known of the show like i remember like just being aware of it like even at a pretty young age um i was very young when the max headroom incident happened but the show I was aware of when I was young, but I hadn't really watched it until my adult life. Um, I became aware of the particular incident of Max Headroom when I was, um, I just started hanging out in the hacker community. I had not really been exposed to it much until I started working with a, there's a group here in the US called the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They're kind of the ACLU civil liberties group for the internet. They do a lot of work on anti-surveillance and privacy. And so I had interned with them and started going to DEF CON, a large hacker conference um, here in the U.S. And really, that was the first time I had been exposed to the incident. Like I had heard about it as well as other famous hacks that that had come about. Yeah. Yeah. And what does Max Hedrum sort of represent to you? What does he stand for? Chaos, maybe? Like yeah. a little bit. Of, I know that sounds kind of odd, but... Um, chaos and a little bit of retro futurism there's mm -hmm. this idea that even when it was filmed it had this very futuristic you know state of the world as an ai but i look look at it now and i even feel like it still is this like vision of the future that we all kind of want in some ways mm. which is like the ones that retro like we were presented when we were younger but we still kind of aren't seeing today and so yeah, it's this retro futurism that I really yeah. love about Max Headroom. Yeah, I, I guess he's sort of like, uh, from, from my own perspective, you know, mm. I, I, I uh, you know, being in the UK, we 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 were nowhere near uh, Chicago when mm. the incident happened, and um, he represents so many different things because he's more of a, mm. a folklore hero yeah. to uh, uh, to myself, and uh, yeah, I, I find that there's so many different incarnations of max headroom you know when he was in you in the uk in in the feature film and then he disappeared from our screens and um you know went to mtv which not many of us had uh here unless we had satellite tv i i go away i grow up and then i get a pc i then start looking around and there's this max headroom incident and i'm going wow what's all this about yeah. and that's how i got into it so i'm very much um no no sage on on max headroom and all that at all and that's why i find it so interesting that you that all these theories that came out and um and the paradox is that probably that there are people that that know more about this and uh, for whatever reason choose to either be cryptic about what they're sharing or not sharing it at all. So it leaves um, armchair experts like ourselves to uh, come out with theories. And um, the, the the theory that, um, uh, that that was published on Twitter for, from your account uh, last, last year, mm -hmm. um, could you tell us more a little bit about that in more detail? Yeah. So, you know, especially in the hacker community, I will – 
like people have talked about where was it? Who was it? How did it happen? Um, I grew up in the city of Chicago, so it also has a little special piece in my heart as well. Um, it has a lot of folklore, right? People are, who did it? Is this person amongst us right now? Are they still in the hacker community? We just have these open questions. And so I've heard, so for context, for those listening, um, when I first, um, you know, it was, I guess, a couple of years ago, maybe five, six years ago, we were celebrating the 35th incident, uh, the 30, 35th anniversary of the Max Headroom incident. And I decided to make a commemorative enamel pin. And I thought it would just be fun. And I, it was widely more popular than I had ever expected. I made some stickers as well. And as a result of like being known for making this enamel pin, people have come up to me and told me all sorts of theories and stories and where they've gone. Um, they've explained to me like what they think is possible and isn't possible. And I've kind of just been this like recipient of this, of this, of all these lores, as well as, you know, someone who's curious myself and, I'm by no means a technical expert in the equipment that existed at this time or broadcast signal intrusions generally, which is the type of hack um, that led to the takeover of a broadcast um, uh, of Doctor Who. Um, but yeah, it's it's so basically when I was tweeting about a particular theory, I had heard a really interesting theory from someone who also grew up in the city of Chicago and what they had potentially have heard when they were younger. Now, kids are lore. And so I just thought it was one of the more interesting theories and I wanted to share it with the Internet. Um, I received a lot of feedback that it's technically not possible, but part of doesn't even care because I think the story is part of the joy of what makes it live on every year and why we like want to buy an enamel pin or wear one to to recognize the incident that happened in 1987. Uh, there's just not enough hours in the day to read the reddits on it and all that so that's why your one really caught my eye because yeah. um, although, you, although you could say you could drill down and uh, like you say you could probably deconstruct your own theories uh, or, or, or there's plenty of people on the internet who who would offer that for nothing um but you know um, re reading uh reading your one i, I found it uh, very interesting you, you sort of attribute it maybe to a um to a school or a college that was um working in media and, yeah. and had some equipment donated to them because of the expense of the equipment in the time and they were probably you know the the the, the local was it wgn or the local broadcaster probably um offloaded some equipment so they could learn to operate it yeah i mean so part of for those who haven't seen this you can search on youtube uh max headrooms broadcast signal intrusion and the youtube videos of this happening will come up and what you'll see is um there are two general clips that happen um one is uh, a clip that interrupted, I believe, Doctor Who, and then another one. Last night, someone broke into regular programming here on Channel 9 and on Chicago's public broadcasting station. As Larry Roderick reports, the first interruption took place during last night's 9 o'clock news. Sports anchor Dan Rowan had just started his Sunday Night Bears report when the screen suddenly went black, then came back on with a new unruly presence. A man wearing a Max Headroom mask. We have been taken over by a video pirate. 
for a short time until technicians here changed microwave channels between the studio and the transmitter and knocked him off the air. But Channel 9 wasn't alone in its Max Headroom appearance. There was even a longer episode on Channel 11, public broadcasting. Any way to learn? I'll get you a hot drink, miss. A little after 11 p.m., Doctor Who was knocked out by the Max lookalike, who pitched a soft drink, then performed a series of antics that station officials found less than humorous before the pirate himself pulled the plug. Channel 11's Doctor Who was unexpectedly knocked off the TV screen last night by a broadcast pirate disguised as Max Headroom. The wacky and at times perverse TV surprise came shortly after 11 o'clock, lasting about a minute and a half. The same thing happened at WGN's 9 o'clock news broadcast earlier in the evening. The FCC says the pirates were able to use stronger microwave signals to override the television signals which are transmitted from the Hancock and Sears towers. The FCC says the wise guys who pulled off this latest stunt are in very big trouble. The pirate mimicked the Max Headroom character that you see on TV. Less than two hours later, Channel 11's broadcast of Doctor Who was disrupted. The 90-second interruption ended with the video pirate's bare bottom being spanked with a fly swatter. So what did you think about the whole thing? Very, very funny. It may seem rather humorous, but there is more to it than that. For when this person is caught, he or she will face both civil and criminal penalties. But basically, what appears is one person on screen wearing a Max Headroom mask, and they are kind of, their their speech is very garbled, and there's clearly someone filming, and then at some point, another person comes on screen and starts paddling the other person's behind with, with an object, um, and it's kind of just portrays a lot of young, um, mischievous, like, harmless fun, um, and they're kind of talking about a particular person, but you can't exactly hear what they're saying. Uh, but I encourage listeners to, to go and see it for themselves because <laughs> it's definitely something special. But as a result of kind of that, the vibes that were portrayed, you know, the theory I had heard was that it was students at a, at a high school called Gordon Tech in Chicago. And Gordon Tech High School... Um, is a pretty large high school in Chicago on the northwest side. They um, have a lot of um, various programs within the high school to teach people technical skills, including um, camera, like newscasting, et cetera. And so as a result, they actually had the capabilities of, of having a studio. And so when I had heard this theory from a friend um, who had said, hey, I think this this is my theory. This is what I've heard. I started digging and going, well, did Gordon Tech have a studio? Like, what did it look like? Can you match up what we've seen on the video to potentially the studio? Um, did they have equipment? Did they work with WGN? Like, where, what are the pieces? And so I started just trying to fill in the holes to make my own theory, which Again, lots of people have told me I am wrong, and that may be true. But, um, you know, like I said in my tweet thread, it's it's the story I want to believe because I don't think we'll ever truly know the truth. Um, and so, yeah, they had, you know, I had found some old news um, reports as well as some a video from Gordon Tech High School um, talking about their TV studio. I had seen, um, you know, reports are heard that potentially news stations 
took old video equipment and donated it to the high school as a way to create a pipeline for hiring, right? Like you're looking for great people, you can hand dial equipment. So I, I kind of just built this theory and put it together in a thread and it, you know, kind of took off and yeah. Um, what, what do you think uh, the, we touched upon, you know, why, why we think that we like law in general for, for tech law. Uh, but, you know, with computers, you know, people deal with things that are very definite, you know, with data, it's either there or it isn't. Why, why do we still eulogize about, about Max Hedrum? Um, I think because this feels like a movie in some ways, right? Like one of my favorite movies is, um, called hackers um if you haven't seen it listeners highly recommend it from the 1990s it's about a group of hackers it's this um very uh beautiful portrayal of or what we all hope right that retro futuristic hope of what we think hacking is um some people really hate the movie i think it's an amazing movie visually and also just really fun to watch um this feels like something that might appear in a movie like that. And I think that makes it fun because it actually really did happen. And the fact that no one was caught, there's this idea, right. That like people can do something that's pretty big and like important, but mostly harmless. And they got away with it and they were kids probably or young adults. And don't we all wish we kind of like, had those moments in our life. And I think that's what, even if we weren't going to do that, right. Or, you know, cause I'm sure it is a crime, but um, we all kind of wish we could get away with it. It feels like a movie like Goonies, right. Kids getting together and on an adventure. And I think that's part of it. That why we all kind of look and like it. That's why I like it is I love that. We don't know who it is. If yeah. I found out, I think I'll be disappointed to me. It mm -hmm. reminds me also of like something like Banksy, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to know the identity. And when you do, it just takes the magic away from it a little bit. And so if I found out what actually happened, I think I'd be disappointed. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a phenomenon that lends itself to so many different, um, uh, theories, you know, I, I came up with an idea last year that it was perhaps a, a, a CIA covert, uh, dry run to see if they could, um, implement this in some banana republic somewhere to incite a, incite a, um, a, you know, an insurrection or something like that. But, um, it was all, all just for fun. And, uh, looking at technology today, obviously, the, the, you know, the, there's no means really of broadcast intrusion in, in, in the classic way. So, you know, a lot of people now can crash Twitch streams or, or, or even take over, um, TV stations, you know, uh, just, just, just with a, with a webcam and, and, and trying to hack into a stream is that something that is that a challenge in in today's info security uh world is, is there is there a threat from people carrying out a max headroom style attack on on corporate organizations um i think it's definitely much more difficult than it once was i actually you know given that my technical abilities about camera equipment in the 1980s is very limited and that equipment could even be older than 80s equipment it could be equipment from the 70s right i don't know how technically difficult that was i think it's um probably because it was mostly analog a little bit easier than what we have in a digital world i think security especially in the last 10 to 15 years has really really progressed and these types of things are ones that any sort of 
um, security team is focusing on preventing, which includes, you know, making sure that whatever you're doing is stable, right? The, in security, they talk about confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And here, um, an attack like the one on Max Headroom compromised both integrity of the stream and the availability of the stream. And so most security programs are focusing on making sure that any sort of digital system now is continuing to have integrity and availability and make sure that it can't be taken down. Mm-hmm. I think you may maybe like in um, what happened with Max Headroom, regardless of the the current news broadcast systems now is more like a almost like a DDoS on a website, right? Or a a takeover of a website that you sometimes see folks like anonymous doing. And so there is some technical abilities where that can still happen um, to liken it more to something that happens on the internet as opposed to, um, you know, Mm. an actual live broadcast. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, the Max Hedrum incident was quite an important thing to happen. Uh, because one, once it had happened, and like with uh, instance like the Captain Midnight as well, um, it, it sort of gives lessons to everybody on how to how to tighten up. So that's probably why they were they were so great when they when they happened. And For those listening, Chess Swirsky was a WGN, a Chicago local television station, sports newscaster. Um, I don't know. This makes me feel like they had some sort of connection to WGN to make that specific reference that they thought he was a freaking liberal. Um, I don't know if they didn't like his newscasting, if they didn't like him, um, if they had, you know, that's part of why, like when I was thinking about who it was it was like these feel like people connected to mm. the tv station in some way because they they referenced him but it could mm. be that also to me signals a self-acknowledgement that they know they're taking over the broadcast mm. because i had also heard you know some you know there's some theories whether they knew or didn't know and i think in my thread i kind of mm. am on the fence mm. but i think to me if you're referencing it you're like Mm. maybe acknowledging that you you know you're taking over wgn yeah. in particular too because yeah. there are some theories doing the rounds about it, it could be um a, uh, a former employee or someone who's just recently been made redundant who uh wanted to uh get the last laugh so to speak so um but yeah it's yeah, a, I had, yeah i've just heard that know. too and i also think that's a super possible theory yeah mm. yeah no absolutely so um so with um with your part-time or your part-time full-time hobby uh on the on the etsy side i was i was interested in the magazine that you're running as well what sort of um what sort of subjects are you touching in on on that yeah um so i i like doing i don't really consider myself an artist which i know sounds really crazy um I I have all these ideas in my head about art and like communicating concepts around privacy, security, and anti-surveillance. And sometimes I have made them stickers or I've made them enamel pins or I've, you know, I used to run a, a small group part of the large hacker conference in, in Las Vegas called DEFCON. I used to run a part of it called the Crypto. Crypto and Privacy Village, Cryptography and Privacy. 
Um, and there we talked about like anti-surveillance, privacy, cryptography. And I had done art for that organization as well, posters, whatnot. And I retired from it recently, and I still had all these ideas in my head of things I'd always want to visually portray in art, like communicate. And I was in a store in San Francisco, and I had seen a bunch of zines, and I just kind of was like, I could publish a zine. Like, I could just photocopy something and staple it together. Like, I don't need to go, like, really high quality. And so I started writing down some notes for myself of things I wanted to portray, um, artistically. And then it kind of snowballed from there. I reached out to a handful of friends to contribute. Um, I used an official publisher because I then wanted it to look a particular way. And it kind of snowballed to be a much bigger project than I had anticipated. But what came out of it was it's about 20 pages of content that basically mostly is a commentary on the current state of society. So there's if you open up the first page of the zine, um, the first page says not made by an AI. And it's it's kind of each page is both either a callback to something retro or, because again, I'm obsessed with that retro futurism, or it's um, commentary on a particular book or reference in the hacker community. I have um, the last page of the zine is a set of classifieds that have just a bunch of callbacks to interesting things and things you'd see. And so I, I dabbled in it to see, you know, would it be something I'd do again? Are people interested in it? Do they like it? And, you know, I, I so jury is still out on that one. I'm still kind of distributing it and handing it out. I brought it to DEF CON um, when I was there in August, but I think if it's successful, I will do it again. And successful is more like, is it appreciated as opposed to am I making money? Because that really isn't why I do it. It's really to get something out of my head and put it into the world. Mm. Um, uh, can I ask how many yeah. pins r roughly do you think you've uh, you've you've shifted now since since you've started? Um, so of the Max Headroom ones, I've reordered that one like from my supplier. So I designed the the pen. I actually drew the art um, a bunch of times, and so I've probably in my lifetime. And and so my Etsy exists as kind of a accident. Um, I made the pin to hand out at hacker conferences and to give to people who liked it. But then so many people saw it online and were like, hey, can I PayPal you and send you one? And then that got really onerous. And so I was like, I'm just going to set up an Etsy, make sure I'm on the up and up with the IRS here in the U.S. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I'm not in trouble with taxes. So I um, I put up an Etsy store. And from there, you know, I've been selling them. I probably have distributed and sold probably about anywhere from 700 to a thousand over the wow. past few years. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's, mm -hmm. and then I've made other pins as a result. I found it was a really fun medium to work in and mm -hmm. I find it a challenge. And so every year as a result, I make a new pin and it generally is commentary on hacker culture or something going on in the like hacker and security space. And so after that, I think the next year everyone was talking about crypto and cryptocurrency. But for me, crypto always meant cryptography and mm -hmm. security. 
And so I did a pin of of a guy yelling crypto means cryptography instead of hack the planet from the movie Hackers. And it kind of has just <laughs> snowballed from there. I've had a handful of stories where people have reached out to me and said, I was on a bus and I saw someone wearing a hacker, one of the Max Headroom pins. And I asked them, like, where did you get this? And like, do you know the person? And so I get these stories back all the time. And I think that's probably the best compliment in the entire world that anyone could ever give me is they've seen that art out there in the world. And they say, hey, actually, I saw it live. And how cool is that? And that makes me really excited. I also was in a bar once and I went into the bathroom and one of the Max Headroom stickers was in the bar bathroom. And I was just like, this is great. Like, I love when it comes back in my yeah. direction and, and I wasn't the one who put it out into the world. So the more I can distribute the stuff into the world, the happier I am. Well, you sounded very modest in saying you're not calling yourself an artist, but um, <laughs> you, you you have to be an artist if somebody else calls you it. And uh, I, I'd say you certainly are an artist. So that's well, I de- that. definitely Thank perfect. You. Yeah, that's great. Oh, well, that's brilliant. Um, just um, just with, with on the hacking side, do you think... Um, yep. When the movie uh, War Games came out in 1983, I've I've recently read an article saying that 1983 was the year hackers hacking came into common parlance with with uh, with with normal people, Joe Public. In 1983, you'd never have imagined that you know everybody would have a computer like Matthew Broderick in his bedroom, and everybody would have a telephone line uh, exclusively for for computer use. It's hard to imagine what 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 will be happening in another forty years' time. But do you, do you have any rough ideas on the, on the rough trends and how things are going in in IT and and computers? That's a great question. Um, I think the challenges will just continue to present themselves in really difficult and unique ways. Um, an interesting thing about war games and here in the U.S. and the impact it had on society. Um, after that movie came out, the United States government basically freaked out. They they were very worried that computer hacking was going to present a massive threat. And as a result, they passed a law here in the U.S. called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is a very well-known anti-hacking law that has put even the most well-intentioned individuals um, in trouble. And... It is quickly written, maybe not the best written, doesn't necessarily reflect what needs to be done um, or what the appropriate levels of, um, you know, people say ethical hacking or white hat hacking or, you know, hacking for with a, a good purpose in place. And so I always think about that movie as an interesting impact on society and how we continue to live that today, where Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is a threat to security researchers because it is so broadly written. So in the next 40 years from, you know, as a lawyer, I was thinking about the law. I hope to see some reforms to hacking laws. Um, I think we've seen a massive shift in the last 40 years in, yes, it's been, you know, popularized in society, but there's ways for individuals to, you know, hack a company and then report it in a coordinated way that can facilitate things becoming more secure. And that's really, really good. Um, I think in the next 40 years, we'll see challenges like generative AI and because you can't go a day these days without mentioning generative AI, presenting new challenges to security and how do we solve them. Um, 
I think we will benefit, hopefully, I hope, from systems being designed from the ground up with security in mind, as opposed to, you know, in the last 10 years with security being more popular, you have systems that already existed where they weren't thinking about security and you had to retrofit it or you had to migrate. And so what will that look like? I also think it's becoming a popular tactic and method for nation states as well as activist groups and we'll just continue to see it being tested um as a privacy individual too um if hacking like to expose personal information in particular doesn't get better which i i'm not sure that it we will see a world where it's impossible to hack something right if it exists it's hackable mm -hmm. um i think we have to move to a world of people shouldn't have the data, right? And this is popular, especially in the EU, but here in the US, it's a lot harder to say, data minimization is important. You know, you can't just collect everything. And so I hope in the next 40 years, we see a lot less data collection and thoughtfulness around it so that even when hacks do happen, the impact on the individuals is minimized. There are regimes, especially here in the US, that I mean, the EU in general and the UK have rejected um, where, you know, oh, if you consent to giving your data or you can sell your data and like you're making a choice. I'm not sure those things are ones that we can rely on anymore because we don't know the harms that will come from a hack or the misuse of that data, especially as we see you know, AI being leveraged to mimic people's voices and images and writing styles. And it makes us wonder, you know, how do you prove that someone is the person that they are? Identity verification. Um, all those things are interesting pieces in security and privacy that I think will continue to be mm -hmm. things we talk about in the next 40 years, mm -hmm. maybe software. Thank you very much for, uh, you know, uh, you know, coming on today has been absolutely brilliant it's been well worth the wait Whitney thank you very much oh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me and oh. to anyone out there listening um if you have theories please by all means share them with me I would be more than happy to hear or if you have um feedback anything I I'm always all ears um and yeah thank you so much for having me I, I really appreciate it well, thanks again to Whitney for appearing on the uh, podcast and sharing her thoughts about um, all things Max Headroom and hacker culture. It's been an absolute privilege to have her. And if you want to give Whitney any feedback at all, you can get her on X at WBM312. Or if you're on Blue Sky, you can get her at WBM312.bsky.social. You can also find more about Whitney on WhitneyMerrill.com. And if you want her Etsy shop, go onto Etsy and search The Garbage File. If you're looking at the pin badge or the magazine and you're not in the United States, it might be an idea just to drop a message to Whitney to see if there's anything that she'll be able to do for you. You never know. Housekeeping time now. Remember, you can always share and like the show. Go on the YouTube, hit the subscribe button, etc, etc. Um, if you wanted to buy me a Kofi, you can do that on co-fee.com forward slash bite high. Any money uh, donated just really goes towards offsetting the podcast hosting costs and maybe some promotional materials. Thanks as effort to the people who have already bought me a Kofi. It's very much appreciated. 
can also find my profile link tree where you can hit the buttons to either join the mail mailing list if you're not in the Twitter loop or the Blue Sky loop and you still want to find out when these come out or you can subscribe to the podcast as you uh, and you'll get automatically notified if, when any new ones come out you can join the conversation at Discord and give us some feedback the theme tune of this uh, Bite High No Limit podcast is made by Mr Nisness where you can find him at YouTube at Mr N-I-S-S-N-E-S-S Bite High No Limit is presented by me Carlos and is a Bite High No Limit production I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I do making them and until next time keep it blocky still here? It's over. Go home. Go.